Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you for uh, this good day that we have to gather together to uh, find rest in you, to uh, fellowship with one another, and to learn from your word and from uh, the history of you know, your, your people. Uh, we pray that you would bless this lesson, that you would uh, help us be convicted of our uh, unworthiness of you, and help us see uh, how you have worked in history through uh, this saint who's gone before us, Bernard. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So I have a question before we start uh, about Bernard of Clairvaux, or if you're British, Bernard. Everyone who I, I read some stuff, I watched some videos, every British person pronounced it Bernard, not Bernard. I'm not British, though, so we're, we're going to go with Bernard today. Um, how many of you have actually heard the name Bernard of Clairvaux before? So T2. Put him up high. I, I want to actually see. Okay, so a, 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 a smallish number of people. Now, how many of you have actually read something by Bernard of Clairvaux, a sermon or a letter or a book? One, two. Okay. So we, we've heard the name, but we don't know really anything about him, do we? He isn't, uh, he isn't well known, at least among us, uh, but he should be. He should be more well known, and we'll see why. I want to begin first with a quote, just to give you a little bit of taste of, of his writing, of his thoughts. He said, Let us then with our whole hearts love our Lord Jesus Christ as true man and our brother. Let us honor him as son of God and adore him as truly God. Let us firmly believe in him. Let us surrender ourselves utterly into his keeping, for he is neither wanting in power to save us, since he is true God and the true Son of God, nor in the will to save us, for he is, as it were, one of ourselves, true man, and truly the Son of God. And how could he be inexorable to us, who became a sufferer for love of us? So a very Trinitarian view of Christ, um, and really a lover of Christ, as we're going to see today. So why, why Bernard? Why this, this saint who has gone before us, who, at least for those of us here today, is rather obscure? Well, uh, let's, let's, let's learn a little bit. He was called a man for all seasons. He was called the honey-tongued doctor uh, of the 12th century. He was called the theologian of love, and one of his most famous books is called Of Loving God, which was, uh, appears to be a letter sent to a friend who was asking him questions. And, uh, you know, anytime, it seems like when you come across someone who has nicknames, they were either a really good guy or a really bad guy, right? So in this case, he was a really good guy. He had good nicknames. By every account, he was the greatest preacher of his age. He was a powerful Preacher, People wanted to hear him, and he affected people. It would not be wrong to perhaps compare him to a Jonathan Edwards or a George Whitfield, who we are more familiar with. At the time of his death, he was the most famous man in the world. And yet today, we, we just don't know much about him, in, at least us here. Uh, he once complained... Uh, now he was a he was a monk, and uh, he was so famous. He complained that there were too many people coming to see him every day. So many people were coming to to get advice from him, 
to seek his counsel that he said he didn't even have time to pray during the day. He almost single-handedly revitalized the monastic life. Uh, Clairvaux, which he founded together with 12 other monks, would eventually plant 300 more monasteries all over Europe, uh, as far north as Sweden and as far east as Palestine. He wrote uh, many hymns. We sang one of them today. Thank you. Uh, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. Also, uh, Jesus, The Very Thought of Thee. And uh, another one that's well known as Jesus, Thou Joy of Living Hearts. So he endures in our hymns. Calvin and Luther both appreciated and loved him. Uh, and and that's, that's significant because neither Calvin nor Luther seem to be very keen on medieval Christianity. And uh, especially monks. And yet Luther said of Bernard, he said, Bernard is superior to all the doctors in his sermons, even to Augustine himself, because he preaches Christ most excellently. He said, uh, uh, again, he said, Bernard loved Jesus as much as any man can. And of him, he said, Bernard was the greatest Christian in the Middle Ages. Calvin saw Bernard as a major witness to the truth in the medieval church between Gregory the Great, which was the 7th century, and the Protestant Reformation. Calvin quotes Bernard, I counted in my edition of the Institutes in the back 33 entries uh, where where Calvin actually quotes Bernard. And he said uh, in the the Institutes, he writes, Bernard speaks as though the very truth itself were speaking. So high praise coming from both Calvin and Luther. And in every generation, Bernard has had uh, admirers, both among Protestants and Catholics, for various reasons. Bernard was an advisor to popes, uh, but he was not a puppet of the pope. Uh, In one letter, he said to the pope, You are despicable. In all circumstances, you know no law but your pleasure. You never think of God, nor do you fear him. So he was not afraid to speak the truth to people who he disagreed with. Uh, Bernard uh, also had uh, criticism of the church of his day. And in uh, one, of, one of his books, he has this lengthy description of what was going on in the church and what was wrong with it. And at the end of it, he says, of people who attended church, he said, the bad do not gain much there and the good degenerate. So he was not afraid of controversy. In fact, his life was sort of dogged by controversy. Uh, One of the controversies was his involvement in the Second Crusade, and we'll talk about that briefly uh, a little bit later. He disputed doctrines with uh, one of the most famous uh, philosophers of the day, Peter Abelard, disputed with him over uh, the the purpose of the atonement and uh, of the Trinity, He opposed some of the more popular doctrines of the day, which I'll talk about later. And then he also founded founded this monastery that I mentioned already. And the founding of that monastery was really a reaction against what the Benedictine order had become. He he thought that they had become lazy and worldly, and so he founded a, a different monastic order in response to that. Another reason to study him is his ministry was always focused on Christ in a a very deep and heartfelt way, almost 
unlike anyone before him, is what people say. He was a Calvinist before Calvinism was cool, actually before Calvinism even existed. Uh, Listen to some of the things that he says, because it it sounds like a reformer. On Christ's intercession and eternal security, he says, he bore the sins of many and prayed for the transgressors, so he's citing Isaiah here, that they may not perish, but they cannot perish for whom the Son prays and for whom the Father delivers to to his own Son to procure them life. So he's saying, if God has given, God the Father has given these people to Christ, then they cannot perish. Uh, On the nature of of the will, he had an Augustinian view of the will. He says this, man's fall when he sinned is not to be ascribed, therefore, not to the gift of the power to sin, but to the fault of the will. Nevertheless, though he fell by an act of will, he hath not equally in his power by an act of the will to rise again free from sin. So he's saying that, when, when Adam sinned, or when, when man sinned, they, they fell, and they cannot then just use their own will to bring themselves out of that state of sin again. And he continues, because although there was given to the will the power so to stand that it should not fall, so it was possible for Adam to not fall, there was not given it the power to rise again if it fell. For it is not easy, for not so easy is it to get out of the pit as it is to fall into it. By an act of will alone, man fell into the pit of sin, but no act of will is sufficient to enable him to rise again, seeing that now, even if he so will, he is not able to not sin. So, even there in the, the 12th century, so if you ever hear someone say, that uh, you know, eternal security was an invention of the Protestant Reformation, or uh, you know, all these reformed ideas. These go back; they go back to Bernard, they go back to Augustine, they go back to Paul, right, in the New Testament. He loved the Scriptures. He says this of the Scriptures: the Scriptures need to be read in the same spirit as the way in which they were written. You will never enter into Paul's meaning until by reading him with constant application and by giving yourself to constant meditation you imbibe his spirit likewise you will never understand David until by your own personal experience you have made the very sentiments of the Psalms your own so he wanted people to have a very deep and a thorough heartfelt understanding of the scriptures and he urged people to be completely and totally devoted to God now we may have some room for criticism because he was a monk and really ideally he wanted to be a hermit but we can still we can still learn from him he says this in all things submit yourself to be a child of god so that you reproach not his sonship in all you do be sure to consider and act as one who is aware that god is always with you and by your side take heed then not only to your external senses but also to your most secret imaginations of thought so that none will possess you with lust or other sinful desires. And then lastly, he was not afraid to deny doctrines that he did not find in the scripture. For instance, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary was a popular doctrine at the time, and he denied that. He he did not find that in the scriptures. He also denied that baptism was necessary for salvation. So that was another teaching of the time. And he said, you know, the, the idea that was taught was that baptism was necessary to cleanse you from 
original sin. And so denying this was not a small thing. That was kind of a big deal. But Bernard upheld, it wasn't called sola fide at that time, but he upheld that doctrine, the idea of faith alone. And he said, no, you don't have to be baptized to be saved. You simply need faith in Christ to be saved. So that's, that's uh, several, 12 reasons why we should uh, get to know Bernard a little bit. Let me give you a little bit of uh, historical background, and then I'll, I'll go through a biography of Bernard. So the 11th century was a significant time in the church. The church at, before here had been one. East and West were, were joined. Uh, there had been some, you know, tumult going on. And in 1054, the official split between the East and West happened. And there were two controversies that really kind of brought this to a head. The first one was that Pope Leo IX asserted authority essentially over the entire world. He produced this document uh, called the Donation of Constantine. Now, the Donation of Constantine had been around since about the middle of the 9th century, and it purported to be a letter from Constantine himself telling, uh, saying that basically the authority has been transferred to Rome. And this was a, it was a forgery. And uh, people had sort of, they'd referenced this before in, in time past, but this was, seems like the first time that someone had actually used it to really assert that the authority of the church is now centered in Rome. And surprisingly, the East did not accept this, right? They, they, they thought it was a forgery. And uh, so that was, a, that was a big significant moment when, when the uh, Western Pope asserted that authority. The second controversy was the filioque controversy, uh, which basically was a disagreement over whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son or not. And so they, the East and West were fighting over this. Uh, of course, they couldn't resolve this issue, so what do popes do when they don't agree with each other? They excommunicate each other. So that's what they did. And uh, so in 1054, there's this official split between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. Secondly, during this time, the Pope is becoming more and more of uh, not just a religious leader, but he's becoming more influential in politics at this time. And uh, one of the significant events that happened that s- sort of started to solidify this political influence was a dispute between Pope Gregory and Henry IV. So they're trying to assert authority over each other, And it kind of comes to a head when Pope Gregory excommunicates Henry IV, and then he places the entire entire empire under what is called an interdict. And basically what that means is that everybody in the empire is not able to practice the sacraments correctly. And so... One person who makes this, you know, if, if you're the Pope and enough people believe you, that's a big, big problem. And so Henry IV heard this. He caved in at that point, and as, as the story goes, he travels to where the Pope is staying, barefoot, in the snow. He stands at the door of the Pope's house, and for three days he begs for him to, to let him in and to restore him to the communion of the church. So after three days standing in the snow fasting, uh, the Pope invites him in and he restores him. 
And uh, there's more to the story after that. It, it didn't go swimmingly after that either, but we don't have time for it. And, uh, but this, this was an important showdown in the, the, a political leader who was having a showdown with a religious leader, and the Pope showed that he does have the authority. He has the power. So that's kind of the backdrop of Bernard. Now let's actually talk about the man himself. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux is not from Clairvaux. Shocking, right? Uh, Born in 1090 at the Chateau of Fontaine, uh, the the chateau there is still standing today, and it, it is a memorial to Bernard. He died in 1153 at the age of 63 years old. He was born into a family of nobility, and his father wanted all of his sons, had six sons and one daughter, he wanted them all to become knights. And so that's what the expectation was. Uh, his mother, however, didn't really want his son to become a knight, and her dying wish was that he, Bernard would be devoted to the Lord. And so Bernard, when his mother died, he was 17 years old, and he saw this, he saw her final wish, and he decided that he was going to do that. He said that that moment was where he really started down the road to complete conversion to Christ. Bernard's father was a godly man, but he was dismayed that his son would not want to become a knight. And, uh, and yet, seeing how... Uh, adamant his wife was about this on her deathbed, he decided that, okay, you can go become a monk. So he became a monk in 1112, and uh, this was a newly formed monastery that he was joining, and it was a very strict monastery, and that suited Bernard really well. He was very strict, and uh, so three years later, a very short three years later, he was actually made uh, appointed abbot of a new monastery, uh, the third to be established by the one that he was at. So he took himself, 12 monks, and they went to this remote valley that was basically a swamp, and they founded the monastery of Clairvaux. So that's where we get the name Bernard of Clairvaux from. That monastery is still there to this day. Uh, However, it's now a prison. Uh, It was converted during the French Revolution. Eventually, you know, his father was, was really very disappointed by this. But uh, in the course of time, all his brothers and his father would eventually join Bernard at the monastery as monks. Now, as I mentioned before, this monastery was established in opposition to the Benedictine order, which people, including Bernard himself, felt had become too lax. So the idea was that this new monastery would actually practice what the Benedictine order had originally been founded for, which was asceticism, hard work, and poverty. It sounds lovely. So Bernard, as I said, he was extremely strict, and so much so that his fellow monks could not bear it. And he actually told them the beatings will continue until morale improves. No, he, he didn't actually say that. But he, his fellow monks could not live up to his expectations, so he did have to loosen the reins a little bit. However, he, Bernard, to his credit, he was stricter with himself than he was with anyone around him. And the result of this was actually permanent damage to his health. So a little, little warning here. So he, he suffered from gastric problems, from digestive problems, 
so much so that they actually had to have kind of a special place for him during church services so that he could deal with his sicknesses. And yet, despite his frail health, he probably accomplished more than most men in the history of the church before or after him. You know, and this is interesting. Calvin said something similar. Uh, toward the end of his life, he, he said that he pushed his body too hard. He stayed up too late studying and writing and doing stuff, and he didn't take care of his body, and he actually regretted that. So it's interesting that Bernard had a, a similar experience here. Bernard himself uh, established somewhere between 60 and 70 additional monasteries, and then that work was continued after his death. On the one hand, Bernard wanted to live a monastic life. Ideally, a, he wanted to be a hermit. He just kind of wanted to be left alone. Uh, and yet, on the other hand, he also found himself being drawn into the political affairs of the world, and even at other times, he asserted himself into affairs of the world when he wasn't necessarily asked to. Uh, one example of this is he very publicly supported Pope Innocent II. So Pope Honorius, Honorius II died. Two popes were kind of vying for uh, that position uh, Innocent II and Anacletus II. I know that's not confusing. Uh, Bernard actually went, he appeared publicly, and in no small part because of his speeches, uh, Innocent II won the day, and he became the next pope. And so this further spread Bernard's fame all over Europe. So he was, while he was a monk, he was definitely involved in the affairs of the world. He wasn't um, necessarily trying to isolate himself from things going on. There arose at uh, some at one point a controversy with a very famous, very well-known uh, philosopher, French philosopher, Peter Abelard. Abelard was one of the most influential intellectuals of the 12th century, uh, a forerunner to Kant and other philosophers, so maybe not maybe not the best reputation historically, but he was very well known. And he turned things on their head a little bit, or maybe a lot of bit. In the thinking of Augustine and the thinking of Bernard, the idea of was faith seeking understanding. We believe these things because the Bible says so, and we, then we seek to understand these things. Well, Abelard took that and turned it on its head. He said, well... I want to understand first so that I can believe. Abelard began with doubt, and that affected his theology in some serious ways. One of the, one of the things that he was a proponent of was Abelard taught that Christ did not die to pay a ransom. He died to simply demonstrate what love is and how far we should go to, to, uh, to love people. And Bernard would say in response, quote, I was made a sinner by deriving my being from Adam. I am made just by being washed in the blood of Christ. Shall generation by a sinner be sufficient to condemn me, and shall not the blood of Christ be sufficient to justify me? Such is justice that which man has obtained through the blood of the Redeemer. But this son of perdition, referring to Abelard, disdains and scoffs at it. Abelard believes that Christ lived and died for no other purpose than that he might teach men how to live by his words and example and point them by his passion and death to what limits their love should go. 
So Bernard uh, very thoroughly refuted Abelard on this topic uh, and on the topic of the Trinity as well. And at the Council of Sens in 1140, which Bernard was instrumental in, in actually um, causing to happen, Bernard's opening statement before the council was so powerful that Abelard himself didn't even respond. He just he gave up, and his teaching was condemned. The sentence was appealed. The Pope confirmed that the, uh, the sentence was right. And at that point, Abelard retired to a monastery and died the following year. The, uh, the, probably the low point in Bernard's life uh, happened in 1145 and, and a little bit thereafter. This was his involvement in the Second Crusade. So in 1145, one of Bernard's formal, former pupils became the Pope. Uh, pope Eugenius III was his name. And Bernard's influence was so well known that some actually said it was Bernard who was the Pope in reality, not actually Eugenius III. Well, while he was the Pope, Bernard spent a considerable amount of time writing to him and instructing him to devote his life to ministry, to, uh, to prayer, urging him to oppose papal tyranny. And he said to him, quote, we will understand ourselves better if we realize that a ministry has been imposed upon us rather than a dominion bestowed. It seems to me that you have been entrusted with stewardship over the world not given possession of it. There is no poison more dangerous for you, no sword more deadly than the passion to rule. Certainly you may attribute much to yourself, but unless you are greatly deceived, you will not think that you have received anything more than stewardship from the great apostles. So he did, he did uh, really urged his friend and, and his former, former pupil to rule in a godly manner. Well, through the course of time, Eugenius asked Bernard to take up the cause of the Second Crusade, and Bernard accepted that. Uh, he, he viewed it as a call from God. So Bernard traveled all over Europe, and he preached, and he promoted this idea of the Second Crusade. Now, Crusades are not a, a, a great event in the history of the church, but maybe a little bit of historical background will help us understand. I'm not going to go real deeply in, into this, although it looks like I could have. Um, so there was in in the east there was uh, the, the Islam was taking over territories that Christians had held, and uh, th- there was a piece of tranquility and peace before this, but there was a militant sect of, of Islam uh, that was very violent. They were killing people. They were forcing conversions. They were doing things that were were pretty horrific, and they were taking over parts of the Eastern world that Christians had held for some time. And so this was not purely a religious crusade, as some people will make it out to be. There were other issues going on there that needed to be dealt with, probably. Uh, and I'm not trying to justify the crusades at all, but there's, it's very easy to criticize, looking back on it, you know, 800 years later, 900 years later, very easy to criticize the mistakes that we, as Christians, made. But in their view, there were things going on. There were people being killed. There were people being forced to convert that needed to end. So Bernard saw this as something that, that God wanted him to do. So he travels throughout Europe, and he preaches, and he promotes the Crusades. And uh, he, he gets about 70,000 men to, uh, to join him. 
uh, or to go to go on this crusade. He didn't go himself. One of the few things that the uh, good that came out of this is that when he was in Germany, he confronted a monk who had been promoting the idea that these knights should be practicing their killing skills on Jews. So that was that was an, an end came to that, which that was a good thing. Uh, but the Second Crusade was a just abysmal failure. Uh, but at the end of it, they had less than seven thousand men left, and it did not accomplish anything that they set out to accomplish. It was a huge embarrassment for Bernard, and he viewed it as a judgment on the sins of the Christian nations at the time. Uh, his popularity did take a huge hit. However, he he was so popular that he was able to um, sort of his reputation sort of survived through that event anyway. He did, in some ways, try to exonerate himself a little bit from it in saying that, you know, when Moses led the people into the wilderness, it wasn't Moses' sins that brought judgment on them. It was their sins. So uh, not a great time for Bernard, but um, that's history, right? I think if, uh, if Bernard had been born maybe 400 years later, he would have been a reformer in the church. Uh, he really loved Christ, and it came out in the, the way he talked and the way he wrote. Uh, his focus really was on loving Christ with all the heart. Uh, in his own time, he was distraught by what he saw going on in the church. He complained that uh, bishops in their, own, in their own territories were not allowed to deal with problems. So we see that this top-down structure was starting to, to be, become a problem. And I think if he was... Uh, around in Luther and Calvin's day, he would have been even more distraught by the things that were going on there. And yes, he had shortcomings. He was a mystic. Uh, his, his interpretation of scripture, interestingly, was, uh, was mostly allegorical. And yet, as we saw from some of these quotes, uh, he was right on a lot of things. You know, he, he was in line with the reformers. And that's why Calvin and Luther liked him so much, is because he believed the truth of the scripture on very critical issues. He's certainly worthy of our, our study. Uh, I mentioned the book on loving God. That's one of his most well-known books. It's short. Uh, it's easy to read. It's very devotional. And uh, his probably his most popular work is his sermons on the Song of Songs. Uh, it's 86 sermons that he wrote between 1135 and his death. And it's interesting, uh, it's not quite an expository of the Song of Songs. It's more like his thoughts on loving Christ with a tangential relationship to the book of Song of Songs. And uh, although, you know, Bernard, in some ways, he's very alien to us, right? Uh, he's a monk, uh, a mystic. And yet, I, I read the book on loving God in preparation for this. And if I didn't know he was a mystic... I wouldn't have guessed that he was a mystic after reading that book. That's uh, definitely worthy of, of being read. His goal in his preaching, uh, I'll close with this, was not so much to explain the words as to reach people's hearts. I, I think that's a, a good thought to be left with today is, you know, oftentimes we, as Reformed people, we love doctrine, and that's a great thing. You know, we love studying the scriptures, and... Uh, we just, we, sometimes, some of us, and I'm guilty of this, we're more interested in knowledge and not of changing our hearts. And that's, that's what I take away from Bernard, is he really wanted to 
grab people's hearts with his preaching and with his ministry and, and bless them in that way. So any uh, questions about Bernard? Yeah. Did you say his whole family, like his dad and his brothers and sisters, all joined the monastery? Yeah, six sisters, uh, six brothers and his one sister, I believe they all, and his father eventually joined him at the monastery. Yeah, Linda. What's your definition of a mystic? I don't have a definition. He, he approached scripture with an allegorical view, uh, not, not a literal view. Um, he also put a lot of emphasis on dreams and visions and yeah, that's, experiential yeah. things that would be elevated to almost the same level of authority mm-hmm. as the scriptures. That's what a mystic yeah. in the medieval time would be defined as. Thank you. Any other questions? Was he, what, what was his uh, nation of origin? France. Yes. Did you read much on his view of atonement? Was it articulated the same way we would? I no, I, I didn't. I even really come across a lot about the atonement. But okay. the the biggest differences, or at least the stuff that I found, was <clears throat> when he was opposing Abelard. Abelard. That's when his you know he really did view that <clears throat> Christ's death was not just an example to us. You know, it actually did something for us. Whereas Abelard would say. It's just an example. I didn't find a lot about <clears throat> his articulation of specific doctrines. Okay. Any other questions? So Bernard was, uh, was a, uh, a man who really loved Christ. It really comes across. And in some ways, you can, you can kind of trace Bernard to Wycliffe, then on to... Huss and then Knox and on, on into the Reformation. So, um, you know, as we, we study history more, we see the hand of God working uh, in, uh, in men who definitely had faults, <clears throat> men who were not perfect, men who we would have, you know, strong disagreements on with, uh, you know, on doctrinal issues and, on, and both and practical issues as well. But uh, we can look back and, and see how the Lord works through uh, imperfect men. And that gives us confidence that he can work through us as well. So let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you uh, for your goodness to us. We thank you for the way that you work in history uh, through men who, uh, who went before us, who loved you, who wrote down their thoughts, who had a great influence on the church. We thank you that we can learn from them. <clears throat> we pray uh, that we would use this lesson on Bernard to further our love for Christ and serve him more diligently. We ask you this all in Christ's name. Amen.